From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company Liquinet, coming to you from New York City. Joining me also in New York is Imogen Rose Smith, an investment fellow with the University of California. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And joining us from the world headquarters of Impact Alpha in the San Francisco Bay Area is editor and CEO David Bank. Hi, David. Hey, Brian. Hey, Imogen. Good to be with you both. Was I enthusiastic enough? You were moderately enthusiastic, Imogen. Uh, we, we had a little talk before the recording of this podcast, and, and David thought that his uh, hellos were always very enthusiastic, and Imogen thought that maybe hers... Uh, I didn't. David thought that mine were, like, unenthusiastic, and I sounded like I was just waking up, I think was your point, which I think is harsh. All I want to say, you guys, I'm jumping for joy to be with you again. <laughs> That's great. Well, as always, uh, I am your very enthusiastic host. And today we are talking about energy access. What do we mean by energy access? Well, then more than 1 billion people around the world don't have reliable electricity. In much of the U.S., the energy and climate discussion has largely focused on replacing fossil fuels with clean energy. But for people in emerging markets, the renewable energy opportunity is to leapfrog the 20th century electric grid with distributed clean energy much like mobile phones have leapfrogged landlines in many countries. The falling price of solar, as well as new financing models, are driving a quiet revolution in energy access in emerging and frontier markets. So, David, what's the big deal? Brian, when I got into this issue, and I first started looking at it a few years ago, I, there were the, the going number was 1.6 billion people without access to reliable electricity. Apparently, we're going to cross the billion mark this year. 100 million people a year are getting access to electricity. And it's basically not the, the grid, as you say. It is basically distributed energy, primarily solar. Now, access can mean different things. A lot of this, frankly, is, you know, very, fairly small you know, solar lanterns and, and, and what are called Pico solar solutions for homes, you know, so you can study at night or charge your, your mobile phone. But a very big growth field right now are what are called mini grids, which are more community scale solar, again, off grid installations that, you know, let whole communities um, get electricity, drive small businesses, schools, clinics, you know, the, the grain mill, the, the, the refrigeration unit to keep the dairy products cold longer. So, it's kind of a rural electrification across the developing world, and it has huge follow-on effects for development of all sorts from, you know, like I say, staying in school longer, keeping businesses open longer, driving all kinds of businesses, farm incomes, um, and, and, and what unlocked it. I mean, solar itself is a 40-year-old technology. The, the, the panels have been around for a long time. Of course, they're getting cheaper and cheaper, but what really unlocked it is financing. Well, Imogen, David just laid out the impact case of energy access and these kind of off-grid solar innovations. Uh, what's the investment case to be made here? So I'm actually very excited about energy access as a emerging investment opportunity, particularly for my friends, institutional investors. One day I'm going to do a podcast where I don't talk about institutional investors. Um, <laughs> but... Not, not if, not if we have anything to say about it. I know it's, it's important to have dreams and goals, right? <laughs> but it, here you have what has the potential to be a very robust, scalable market with a risk return profile that makes sense to asset owners across a variety of spectrums. So you know you might be investing in energy access in Haiti, 
And that sounds like it's really risky, but in actual fact, when you peel it back and you look at these investments, you're like, well, no, you're really taking on relatively negligible risk for an emerging or frontier market. And so we've been kind of down lately on impact and, you know, what we're seeing in terms of scale and its potential, but here is somewhere where, you know, to David's point, it's hard to think of a greater impact than bringing power to communities that don't have it and how transformational that is in terms of lives, in terms of economies, in terms of business, to provide the financing to do that is massive. And again, we're talking about a billion people. That is a ginormous market. Brian, you, you have some direct experience in this, don't you, as an impact investor? Yeah, the Liquidate for Good fund that I uh, that I chair, we actually invest in a solar company that's uh, initially starting in Rwanda, but they are planning to be a pan-African distributor and financer of off-grid solar clean energy. And they've started in Rwanda, it's called Ignite Solar, and they have scaled already to over 60,000 households that they've reached with off-grid solar units. So it's a pay-as-you-go model. Uh, We provide the units upfront and have one of our employees install them on the the roofs of one of our customers. And then uh, they pay a little bit each month and have access to a couple lights, a cell phone charger, which is actually a big piece of it and a big value, and some other things like some some of the units have maybe a radio and some other things like that. Brian, you're part of a trend. We hear that off-grid and energy access investing um, is due for sort of the you know proverbial you know hockey stick. I mean, it's from a small base. There's something like you know I don't know top ten investment managers have deployed something like three hundred million dollars in this, um, and in the next two years they project themselves to deploy one point three billion dollars or more. So something like you know sixfold increase. And these are folks like, you know, Bamboo and, and Shell and Oiko Credit and Triodos and Deutsche Bank has a new fund and SEMA has a new fund. So I think, you know, the, the inv- impact investing world, at least, and, you know, this kind of little bit of development finance world is onto this opportunity. I think the real question is, is, is there a tip over into not just the impact investing world and the development finance world, but in effect, sort of more traditional mainstream investing? Are we going to see asset owners or hedge fund managers or private equity firms go out and buy or create entire funds to invest in these credits? And I think that's, you know, they're they're not danger, but I think the challenge is, does all of this just get absorbed by the sort of the the developmental finance entities and and the, the, you know, PRI businesses or whatever that are out there? Or do we really see the transformation into a viable capital market. I think you're you're exactly right, Imogen. We, Impact Alpha, we've done, I don't know, a dozen or more stories. I mean, just as they come across, you know, different companies getting financing and whatnot. But the trend really is just what you say, which is not you know, equity investment in, in the company, but basically good old-fashioned commercial bank loans and increasingly, you know, local in-country commercial bank loans that are financing the expansion of these off-grid solutions by effectively taking the accounts receivable that you, that the you know your customers have have committed to um, and financing you know all the inventory and working capital and and that sort of thing that the companies need to really ramp up and just beginning to happen the first few deals like that are are now 
you know, on, on the books. And it's, you know, it's, it's definitely something to watch. But, but a lot of these folks that have been funding have been funding the companies specifically to get to this point where they're unlocking basically good old-fashioned bank loans. So I think the bottleneck from, you know, the organizations that I've spoken to and what I've seen is in the equity financing, right? It's in the venture funding, the startup dollars to get these businesses to the point where they're in a position to take on the lines of credit and build out the client base that can get them to sort of critical mass and where they can really start to have an impact on the, lo the local communities. Yeah, that's exactly right. That, and that's our, our approach. And that's why we invested in Ignite Solar is because we're trying to invest in scalable models that are demonstrating solutions to social and environmental challenges and that, that we hope to then attract mainstream capital markets participants to then scale up. So uh, that's what's very exciting, I think, about pay-as-you-go, about off-grid solar, is it's not just about providing energy access, but it's also uh, developing customers and developing relationships with people that you know, traditionally were thought of as very poor people that should be recipients of foreign aid and charitable support. Uh, but now when we think of them as customers, we think of them as people with their own agency and their own dignity and their own ability to make decisions. And as customers, they're developing you know, a credit profile. Like we now have a lot of data on their ability to pay each month. And then so therefore we have uh, can develop a credit profile and provide them uh, other financing, other products down the road. And so I think there's an untapped where we're, we're tapping into an opportunity here that's attractive for mainstream investors because now they have a line of sight into how this can be a viable long-term play. And that's also, like, I mean, that's what microfinance was about, right? We've, we've had, you know, however many decades that is now, three decades of work and research done into microfinance. And that, in many ways, has forged the path for energy access. And it's the same kind of thing we're talking about in terms of developing a line of credit, seeing these people as consumers with agency as opposed to yeah just effectively you know a drain on the economy and also recognizing the cost of being poor right that you can you know that it costs you so much if you don't have access to energy to go get water to charge your phone to you know with kids in school don't you know doing homework or like the economic cost of just living a life on you know in poverty and without access to electricity and other resources is massive and the, if you can like put a dent in that then you know people's ability to pay back is that much greater and the, it's transformative to their quality of life and to their community you know it it, it builds yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's the it has a ripple effect too because the units that we sell, the monthly cost is actually cheaper than the monthly costs that they're replacing for energy, which exactly. is kerosene oil traditionally. Uh, and kerosene oil costs more each month, but they it's the type of thing that you can you know afford month by month. Uh, it's hard to afford a two hundred dollar you know solar unit. Uh, so the innovation here is the financing and the mobile payment. Uh, systems, which you know ha has helped make this all possible as well, uh, so that it's the replacement cost on just the kerosene oil alone is worth it. But then you're getting mobile charging for your cell phone, you're getting solar uh, radio, you're getting all these other uh, things that are just you know a, a bonus, and that, that just helps bring people into the more uh, more advanced opportunities and more possibilities for their families and for their own uh, economic agency and development.
just to put a, a sort of exclamation point on what you guys are saying, which I, I totally agree with, is that it turns out the cost of capital is about as important in the total system cost as the cost of the product, as the cost of the panels and, in some cases, the battery and, and the various electronics. Because, and that, that plays to a sort of scale economics. So there, people are talking now that, you know, there, there's been a sort of proliferation of solar lantern companies and then now increasingly proliferation of, of, of microgrid, comp mini-grid companies, but that there's some kind of consolidation, you know, that's in some ways inevitable as companies that get big enough to be able to cut these commercial financing deals enjoy lower costs of capital, therefore have a competitive advantage. In, indeed, some of the big utilities, including, you know, like European and particularly French utilities, are have been buying up or at least buying into these uh, distributed solar, distributed energy access companies in Africa um, and, you know, applying their, you know, financing and distribution might to the problem. So it sounds like, you know, small is beautiful, but in fact, it may become that there's, you know, you know, three, two to three big providers in each country in the same way that there's two to three big telecom providers in each country. I, it, it's unclear if that's going to happen, right? With the, I mean, I think because you still have the disruption of the energy grid and it still seems clear that like dispersed is going to be beautiful. But I do agree with you that you are seeing large actors move into the space. I think the, the other people moving into the space that is incredibly interesting is the large tech firms, right? So firms like Facebook are exploring energy access in you know places like Africa, and like that's like you think about the you know the the size and scale and power of corporations today and and their ability to make transformative changes like. That's the kind of things it's going to come from. Facebook is one of the one of the I think grant funders in this case, but one of the backers of something called SunFunder, which has been mobilizing ever increasing amounts of capital to back the company, the solar companies that we've been just discussing. So there's layers of this financing, as you say. There's early stage. There's concessionary, you know, sort of um, risk guarantees and debt uh, credit enhancement kind of money in the in the stack. Um, and now that increasingly, like you say, there's uh, a commercial money as well. But I think this is one of those examples of uh, so many investors have what's called a home bias, right? So they are, are comfortable investing in their own markets that they know well. Uh, and they are perhaps scared of uh, uh, investing in markets that they don't know well and that are uncertain about. So I think that there is a little bit of uh, uh, kind of psychology behind this of how do we provide promising models of really compelling investments, but that maybe are in industries or sectors or geographies that traditional mainstream investors have been skittish or scared of or uncertain about. Uh, so how do we overcome that that you know home bias and that that ignorance gap? I think you are right. I think it's obviously it's a lot more complicated than home bias. I think it's like how do we go around assess about assessing and monitoring risk? Like you look at a country like Haiti and, you know, you think, my God, that's an incredibly risky place to invest. Why would I want to do that? You know, something like there's a firm called 10 Power that is bringing power to Haiti by, you know, working with corporations and schools and organizations like that. And yes, there's still relatively large amount of risk, but it's, you know, you're not, it, it's nowhere near the sort of level that you would think of when you think about it about a country like that. So, and again, when you start looking at the default rates and the abilities of these people to pay back, and then the transformational impact that you're having, it's like you know, you, you reduce the the electricity costs dramatically 
thus making these businesses much more much more stable. Um, I, I love how Imogen has now become a blue sky optimist. That's usually <laughs> my role. Actually, let me try out the lovable curmudgeon role for a second, which is um, I uh, have been for the last few, several years involved with a nonprofit, actually. I'm on the board of directors of something called We Care Solar. And it's doing modular solar systems, so-called solar suitcases for health clinics in the developing world. And we think there's something like 300,000 primary health clinics without electricity. So you can imagine, you know, women giving birth or midwives and doctors, you know, helping women give birth in the dark, literally, you know, with like, as you say, kerosene lamp lanterns or, 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 or candles or even holding their cell phone, you know, flashlight in their, in their mouths. Um, and, uh, it's just the most obvious sort of public health intervention to bring lighting to these clinics, but not only lighting, but refrigeration for certain vaccines and medications all, and everything. Yeah, else. All of that, and you know, and 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 various kinds of you know monitoring and and, and diagnostic tools and and a whole world that that opens up with electricity. And because and it and it is a tough case though because these are public clinics, so there is a world of private clinics and they have you know their own financing solutions. But public clinics, you know, it's the budgeting is opaque. The you know the, the uh, I don't want to mention the corruption. The systems are not well oiled to finance these kind of capital improvements. And slowly, 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 that world is you know the ener the renewable energy world and the public health world is getting bridged. But it's taken much longer than we thought. That said, you know, it's a hugely impactful intervention. I don't see how that was being curmudgeonly. I think you need more practice. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I, I was trying to figure out what's wrong with this with this episode so far. And I think the answer is that we're all in violent agreement uh, and we're all violently optimistic about the opportunity here. I, I'm about to lose access to energy with my compute power, with my computer. <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with, with the story of one of my favorite curmudgeons. Frank Lloyd Wright. So Frank Lloyd Wright had an estate in Arizona. I think it's called Tallahassee or something, but I didn't look it up, so I might be completely mispronouncing that. And one of my favorite Frank Lloyd Wright stories was that it had this, it has a spectacular view, you know, across like the desert. And when they were bringing power to the West, Frank Lloyd Wright was outraged because the power lines were going up and it was like ruining his view. And he think like, Christ, what an arsehole. Like that power is going to transform these people's lives. And there's Frank Lloyd Wright complaining about the aesthetics of his view in his like, you know, winter retreat. Uh, I'm, I'm actually with Frank Lloyd Wright on this one. I, th I think the, the, the power lines are generally. I thought there was going to be. And then he designed the perfect solution. He, the sl he was like proposing to design all these solutions to get around it. And they were like, no, that's like really expensive. Why would you do that? Go away, Frank Lloyd Wright. But I guess he would be fine with like the decentralized energy grid and, you know, the, the transformations of access to power. No power lines. No power lines. I mean, you know, I guess mini, I guess mini grids have power lines. But if you if you have a standalone system, you know, you just put some um, very stylish uh, uh, solar tiles or solar panels up there on your on your on your roof. And, and there you go. And then and then we've got the power. So that's going to do it for uh, this episode <laughs> of, of Returns on Investment. Uh, thank you so much, Imogen Rose-Smith. Thank you. And thank you so much, David Bank. Thanks to both of you. Uh, special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Uh, this podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build an inclusive, sustainable, and growing economy. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks for listening to Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking with you soon.